spoke about his death today, I want to talk about more about his life. Today I want to talk about his life specifically, meditating on his holiness and then how that shaped his, his interaction. So I want to start um, with three stories. I think it was last year, um, I'm taking a note out of Roderick's book of storytelling and wondering how all these things are going to come together, but then somehow, hopefully, they, they do. So we'll, we'll give this a shot. Uh, I think it was last year that I had someone come out to me to tell me that they were, they were gay. Now, this is a person that I've known for, for all their life. We've had a long relationship, one that has only ever been warm and pleasant and mutually respectful. But they had held off, I think even for a couple of years, from, from telling me about their sexuality because they knew that I was a pastor. And they didn't know then how I'd react to, to that news. Now, this person believes in Jesus. That They've grown up in church, they've heard the gospel, and they believe it. But they find themselves in this position where they have these two seemingly incompatible identities. One as a, as a Christian who loves Jesus, and one as a homosexual person. And being unable to reconcile these, it's the faith then that has been left aside. Now that decision for this person, while not an easy one, it was actually made easier, unfortunately, by their experience of church. They had been part of a church for the better part of their life, and over that time, they had come to understand that, that for them to come out in that context, in that environment, was not safe for them to do so. They knew that in the eyes of the church, if this was made known there, that they would be considered less than. They'd be judged, unworthy, unclean, unwelcome. They would be considered a sinner. Well, one day Jesus was invited to dinner at a Pharisee's house. And as the custom of that day was, they didn't sit upright at tables like we do, but they would recline at them. And so that picture gives you a false representation, but we'll go with it. That, um, they'd recline at the tables with their, their feet out around the outer edge of a circle. And there was a woman who the scriptures say had lived a sinful life, who had heard, though, that Jesus was at this place having this meal. And so she came up to him and, and overwhelmed, even in just being in his presence, she begins to cry. And as she does so, the tears fall from her face onto his feet, leaving muddy tracks through the dirt on them. And perhaps embarrassed by this, you know, for, for tears to have gone that far, I mean, that she must have really been bawling. Perhaps embarrassed by this, she wants to clean his, his now muddy, dirty feet but she has nothing at hand, so she does something that's actually quite scandalous for the time. She lets down her hair. This was an intimate gesture to be done only in the presence of her husband. It was considered in the same kind of category as if she had exposed her breasts to the other men in the room. And the subtext of the story is that this woman has done both. She's done let down the hair and other acts in that, in that context but now in an act though that is far from sexual she uses her hair to dry jesus feet before then kissing them and, and anointing them with the perfume that she brought with her now simon is the pharisee who invited jesus to this meal and he looks on the scene smugly 
He was someone who kept the highest standards of holiness. And while he's no doubt scandalized by this woman's actions, for him, realistically, they were to be expected because she was someone who was less than. We don't even know her name. He judged her as unworthy, unwelcome, unclean. And he thinks to himself that if Jesus were really a prophet like he seems to be, he would know who is touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. There was another time where Jesus called a man named Matthew to follow him. Now, Matthew was a tax collector, and that made him pretty much the lowest of the low in Jewish society. He was a Jew himself, but rather than standing with his own people in solidarity with them and kind of against the Romans, he aligned himself with the Roman overlords, and he worked for them to help fund their oppression of the Jews. And in order to do this, he effectively robbed from his own people, demanding excessive amounts of taxes from them. And Jesus, of all people, ends up at a party at Matthew's house. He's there with a bunch of other tax collectors and and sinners. And he's with people who are less than, who are judged, who are unworthy and unclean and unwelcome. And the Pharisees, they don't get it. They ask his disciples, Why does Jesus eat with, why does he associate and hang out with sinners? Well, one of the things that strikes me about Jesus, if we think about his life and the life that he lived in his time on on this earth, one of the things that strikes me about Jesus is how in his holiness, he was, and and he still is, but he was attractive and, and appealing to the unholy. To sinners. In contrast to the seeming holiness of much of the church or of the Pharisees of his day, Jesus doesn't see unholy people as less than. He doesn't condemn them. He doesn't respond to them as unclean and unwelcome. He doesn't reduce them to a specific sin in their life. Instead, he sees them as whole people. He invites them in. He embraces them. He touches them. He forgives them. He frees them. He he sees them. And as a result, Jesus is known to be a friend of sinners. Now, when that person came out to me, one of the things I said to them is to not give up on Jesus. I said, despite your experience of his people in the church, Jesus would always be found spending his time with the sinners. When Simon the Pharisee challenged Jesus about the type of woman who was daring to touch him, Jesus, in fact, judged him, and he gave his love, forgiveness, and peace to the sinful woman. And when asked about why he associates with sinners like he does, why he goes to parties with tax collectors, Jesus' response was to say, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. (laughs) But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have come to call not the righteous, sorry, I've left the word out there, not the righteous, but sinners. In other words, Jesus, his holiness 
offered to sinners, His holiness offered not judgment like that of the Pharisees, but His holiness offered them health and life. Now, holiness means being set apart. But there's a difference between being set apart and keeping yourself apart. The Pharisees did that. They kept themselves apart. They, they kept themselves away from sinners and so away from sin. And they are then the ones who receive Jesus' judgment and, and condemnation. See, unlike the Pharisees, Jesus wasn't worried about his holiness being contaminated. Rather, for Jesus, it was like his holiness. He wanted it to be contagious and to spread it as far and as wide as he could. He wanted to infect, if you like, as many people as possible with his holiness. And that meant then being where those unholy sinners were. After all, that's why he came to earth in the first place. And I think when we look at Jesus and at his holiness... And when we then look at ourselves and our efforts to be holy, I think that far too often we're doing it wrong. I think that far too often we fear that any sense of compassion towards a sinner means that then we're compromising our holiness. And so we respond, whether we intend it or not, we respond with judgment and exclusion. But that seems to be the approach of the Pharisees not the approach of Jesus. Now, Jesus was undeniably holy. The writer of the letter to the Hebrews was at pains to, to demonstrate this. They emphasized that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we were, yet was without sin. He describes Jesus as offering himself to God as an unblemished sacrifice. Jesus has made the way to the most holy place, by his blood, and he himself now sits at the right hand of the Father in the very presence of God who dwells in inapproachable light. God is described as holy, holy, holy in Isaiah and Revelation and other places. And at the time of writing, they didn't have bold or italics or underline, so they had to emphasize the utter degree of God's holiness by repeating the word multiple times. And Jesus, Hebrews says, is the radiance of God's glory and is the exact representation of his being. In other words, Jesus is holy. Jesus is holy, holy. Jesus is holy, holy, holy. Holy is something that Jesus is. It's in his very nature and in his very being. He cannot help but act according to his holiness because he is holy. And in that holiness, he welcomes sinners. Holiness done right then must seek out the unholy, to seek to invite them in and to make them welcome, to offer them the health and the life that comes from knowing Jesus. Holy is something that Jesus is. But for the Pharisees, holiness was something that they did. Holiness was something they do. That They work at it. They work hard at it. And in doing so, their holiness becomes measurable. If they can keep 659 rules and commands, then they are, by definition, more holy than someone who only keeps 658. Let alone someone who struggles even to keep the Big Ten. 
And so Simon the Pharisee saw this sinful woman. She was less than. He judged her and he found her wanting. She was unclean, unholy, and unwelcome. And in the story of this encounter that's found in Luke 7, Simon even found Jesus wanting. Actually, it's found in Luke 9. Simon found even Jesus wanting. Because after all, Jesus was letting such a woman touch him. And that made Jesus, in Simon's eyes, less than. Made him unclean. In other words, Simon judged himself as holier than Jesus. Given Jesus is holy, 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 bold, italics, underlined, all caps, hold that kind of level of holiness, this is an absolutely ridiculous position for Simon to put himself in. And yet, and yet the scriptures hold up a mirror to our own lives. And I think that far too often the mirror that's held up to us show us that we look a lot more like Simon then we look like Jesus. We're more holy than the person who has a different sexuality than us. We're more holy than the person who has multiple obvious tattoos. We're more holy than the person who wears shorts and thongs to church. We're more holy than the person who doesn't, same, uh, doesn't hold the same views on various doctrines as we do, whether that's about creation or end times or whatever it might be. We're more holy than the person who only comes to church sporadically or who comes consistently late. We're more holy than the guy sleeping with his girlfriend. We're more holy than those people over there who don't recycle. You know, that wasn't meant to be funny, but... (laughs) Name the issue... And we're the ones who are on the right side of it. And I'm not having a go at anyone with that list because I'm on it multiple times myself. But whatever the issue, we judge and we exclude and we are more holy than them and more holy than Jesus. But when the mirror is held up, we realize that we're just being ridiculous. You know, when the woman is caught in adultery, and she's brought before Jesus by all the Pharisees and scribes. And they say, this woman's caught in adultery. The law says we need to stone her to death. What do you say? And Jesus says that the person who is without sin should be the first person to throw a stone. And he holds up the mirror to them. And it's the older ones then who leave first. As the mirror comes up, they realize, actually, I don't have a leg to stand on here. It takes a bit longer for it to break through the pride of the younger ones, but eventually they too see their reflection in that mirror and realize that they need to drop their stones and walk away as well. And then just Jesus is left. The one who is actually without sin, the one who is entitled to throw the stone, is the one left with this woman. And what does he say to her? Neither do I condemn you. 
And I think the trick for us to respond like Jesus does is found in this encounter that he has with Simon the Pharisee in his house over dinner. See, after confronting Simon with his judgmental, literally, you know, holier-than-thou attitude, Jesus asks Simon, do you see this woman? And the implied answer is no. I mean, yes, she was literally there before him. Yes, his eyes literally could see her, but he didn't. For all his sight, he missed the picture that was before him. Because Simon did not see the woman. Simon saw a sinner. If this man really is a prophet, he would know the kind of woman who is touching him, that she is a sinner. That was who Simon saw. He saw where the line was crossed. He saw the sin. He saw the sinner. He saw the issue. Where Jesus, he saw the person. He saw the woman. And that's why then Jesus was a friend of sinners. Because Jesus loves people. And people are sinners. If we had to be holy before we could come to Jesus, well then we'd still be found less than, judged, unclean and unwelcome. But Jesus, who in his holiness cannot stand sin, yet in his love reaches out to people who sin. Now, does sin break Jesus' heart? Absolutely. Does Jesus find sin morally wrong and repulsive? Most definitely. Does Jesus then let people off the hook for their sin? Not at all. I mean, it might look like it, but not at all. It might look like he does until we then see him nailed to a cross. That's how seriously he takes sin. And that's how much he loves the people who do it. He dies for them in order to bear their sin, to be able to offer them forgiveness, to give them his righteousness, to give them his holiness, and to make life with God possible for them again. And when I say them, really I mean us. I mean you. I mean me. And a day will come when Jesus returns and he will judge with anger and wrath those who do not rely on his holiness through faith in his death and resurrection on their behalf. But until that day comes, Jesus is a friend of sinners. He looks beyond the sin, he looks beyond the issue to see and love and to welcome the person. And he wants us as his church to do the same. So practically, how how do we do our holiness so that it's more like Jesus and less like the Pharisee? Uh, It starts with stopping judging people. It It starts with stopping to try measuring and assessing ourselves as, as somehow better on, 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 a, on a ranking. We need to stop trying to convince other people that your position is the right one. And rather, we need to see and respond to the person, not the issue. And we need to seek forgiveness, both from God 
and perhaps maybe especially from the person when we fall short and when we fail at this because we're, we're not Jesus. We have not yet been made what we will be. We still fail and sin. And I think that's part of it too. To recognize that we too are just as unholy. That we too are just as in need of Jesus' grace and love and mercy to us. That we too are just as in need of Jesus to see us. Jim and Rob and Heather and Gavin to see us as people and not our sin. See, Jesus was a friend of sinners. And his holiness, his utter holy, holy, holiness was then attractive and appealing and compelling and warm and inviting to the unholy. Can the same be said of us? Can the same be said of me? Are we doing our holiness right? Are we doing it like Jesus? Let me pray for us that, that we would increasingly do so. God, we, we just want to thank you for Jesus and who he is. We thank you that he was holy, holy. And yet in that, and perhaps even because of that, he then acted to make others holy to draw others to himself. That he wasn't worried about being contaminated, but instead he just wanted to spread his righteousness, his holiness to others. And we are here today, God, as recipients of that, as a result of that. And so we just can't help but come before you to say thank you for Jesus. Thank you for who and how he was. And we come then to say, we want to be more like Jesus. We're his people. We're his followers. We've put our faith and our trust in him. We love him. We worship him. We adore him. We want to be more like him. And so help us, God, to do that. By your spirit, be at work within us. We need to repent, God, of those times when we haven't, when we've been like the Pharisees, when as your people we have done a poor job of showing your character and nature to others. And I ask, God, that you would forgive us. Maybe for us as a congregation there, there's a specific instance a person, an interaction, a, an issue where we see, yep, actually, just call me Simon. And bring that before God now in, in repentance, in confession, in asking his mercy on, on you, a sinner. God, we, we want to repent from all the ways in which we are not like Christ. 
And we've brought before you a specific instance, specific area. And now we ask, God, that by your spirit that lives within us, the spirit of Christ, that he would so fill us, so enlarge us, so be at work within us, that in this area, as well as in (laughs) so many more, that he would be at work transforming us to make us more like Christ, that we would be holy as he was. And in that, that we wouldn't consider others less than, we wouldn't judge, they wouldn't be unclean, unwelcome, but that, like Jesus, we would find the love to embrace, welcome, and include. And in doing so, that they would have an experience of you, an experience that transforms them in whatever way you (laughs) see that they need to have that. And so, God, we come today as your people. We've heard your word. We have your spirit within us, at work within us. And we just want to say, we want to be more like Jesus. And so we pray this, we ask this in his name. Amen.